Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 54, the one about email marketing techniques, vlog transitions, Clive Sinclair, and the film Misery. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And today, of course, I'm joined by my co-host. I'm on a mission to keep marketing simple, the host of the Roger Video Series and the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, it's always a pleasure to spend some time with you as well. You are also a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. You are the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast, and you are actually in France at this moment in time. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Yes, this is a first for Two Geeks and Marketing podcast and international production. You are in Scotland. I am in France. The old alliance still going strong. Absolutely. And the Wi-Fi is absolutely teetering on the brink. So <laughs> we are going to be as fast and as succinct as we can be today, Pascal. Absolutely. Let's see if we can avoid breaking the internet and create an uh, international uh, disaster. So we have a very <laughs> special recording we have chosen for you. Probably one of the best adaptation of a Stephen King book, Misery. Before that, we're going to do our creator shout-outs, of course. Then we also have a very special This Week in History dedicated to Cirque Life Sinclair. We're going to share with you some apps and tech that makes life easier as content creators. We are going to surprise each other with our content spotlight. But let's begin, as we always do, with In the News. 64% of all online retail comes from mobile. However, conversion rates on mobile are only half that of desktop, according to Google. A new research from Hugh entitled News Consumption Across Social Media confirms that Facebook and YouTube are still leading the way as the top sources of news for US consumers. YouTube has launched its first ever podcast called The Upload, The Rise of the Creator Economy. It will feature interviews with YouTube stars who've gone on to create their own businesses on the platform. Well, Instagram is testing a new option called Montage, nice French word, which will enable users to convert their stories frames into short reels video clips. According to a survey by Wonderman Thompson, 53% of B2B buyers have switched suppliers in the past 12 months due to the lack of functionality and poor load speeds on websites. Mm, well, Roku has partnered with Shopify, allowing online traders to launch targeted campaigns within minutes within the app of Roku's audience of 51 million active accounts. It's official. The BBC is bringing back Doctor Who showrunner Russell T. Davis for the 60th anniversary of the time-travelling character in 2023. Well, and finally, the iconic 90s series Game Master is returning to Channel 4 after a 23-year absence, but still no news who will take the place of the late Sir Patrick Moore. So very quickly, Roger, that was just for you, the special treat to announce you know, the return of Russell T. Davies. As a Doctor Who fan, representing probably the global fandom, is this good news? Ah, uh, I, I was very shocked, Pascal. I mean, I, I did not see that coming. As you would expect, there's been lots of uh, rumours and debate uh, um, amongst fans about who will be the replacement for Chris Chibnall, who's the current showrunner. Um, nobody suspected they were going to bring back Russell T. Davis. But I think 
it's a great thing, but it's also indicative of the fact that the BBC have effectively let the brand suffer. Uh, you know, casting Jodie Whittaker um, as as the Doctor, she's a great actress, and yes, the Doctor could become a female within the narrative of the show, and and I don't think that's why it's 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 failed. It's just become too um, too of woke and too political and too aware of itself and maybe it's just become too wrapped up in its own mythos and all of those things combined have just made the brand suffer a bit so I think they're bringing Russell T Davis back to effectively take it back to where it was in 2005 when he originally brought the show back hopefully rejuvenated and probably with another female doctor i don't think that that that's that's an issue i think it 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 just become too inwardly focused over the last um, couple of years Mm, okay. I wanted to ask you very quickly about the first news you read out. So this idea of 64% of retail comes from mobile. However, the conversion is half that of desktop, according to the Google research. Now, if you read the paper, then Google was on to say, ha-ha, we told you you had to do a better job with mobile websites and conversion, this and the other. But I wonder whether there's also an issue around behavior whereby if you have a mobile phone on your hand, you move a browser. But if you sit down and open your laptop, you're going to be more into taking action. So I don't think it's just as simple as just, you know, your mobile website or the version of your website on the mobile phone is not as good, uh, as enjoyable, let's say, as a desktop version. Yeah, do you know, it's a very interesting one. I've not really even thought about it until I read this item out, but this is the behavior that I exhibit as well. I do tend to browse things on my mobile phone, even with Amazon, which is a pretty good website. But if I actually buy something, I tend to do it on the desktop. And I don't know whether I think it feels more secure. I don't think it's that at all. Um, possibly it's just some of the little, you know, some of the drop down boxes can get a little bit fiddly on some websites. Maybe that's it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it, maybe it's a psychological thing, but maybe it just feels safer to buy stuff on the desktop. Mm, I mean, if I just reflect on our own behavior, preparing our trip to France after two years, honestly, and we browsed, we researched, we took notes down via the mobile phone while the TV was on, to be honest with you, and a cup of coffee. But when it was time to spend the money, we sat down at the desk with a laptop and we carefully booked and did everything. And I think this by this idea of um, being able to concentrate more, um, you know, it could be a generational thing. But I just wanted to kind of bring that up because I think, you know, we hear a lot about this idea of mobile first that kind of and Google being quick to critical criticize people about aha your mobile website is not good enough but I think we shouldn't forget audience behavior let me ask you then your reaction to the second item that you read with this idea of YouTube launching a podcast all right so we have two school of thoughts really (laughs) should they stick to video and leave the podcast world alone or is it okay well, my first question was, is it a, just an audio podcast or is it a, a video podcast as well, like ours is? Um, I guess if it's a video podcast as well, we, we might let them off. Um, I think it's it's interesting that they're doing this whole thing about the creator economy and they're interviewing people who have used YouTube to 
develop their own businesses. And again, you know, we've had conversations on the show before about this. There have been some phenomenally successful YouTubers who have got millions and millions and millions and millions of followers. And some of those people can earn enough money just from the advertising revenue that they get from having so many subscribers. But some people have gone on to create businesses as well, purely because of their fame or notoriety on YouTube itself. But there are two types of business people on YouTube, I think. There are people who create courses to teach people how to become YouTubers. So I've got a million followers. I'll tell you how to make videos so that you can get a million followers. Or there are people who what I think could probably do something a little bit more creative, actually create a business around something maybe related to their subject, but not specifically about how to create video. Now, there's a couple who I follow on YouTube who do travel vlogs, um, and it would have been so easy for them to have put together a course on doing travel vlogs. But what they've done instead is they've, they've created a company that actually prints up your travel itinerary and makes it into a piece of art. So, for example, you know, the journey that you did from Newcastle down to Folkestone across the channel and into France, you know, their, their program would create a nice piece of art with the map and with your journey mapped out. And if you want the names of towns that you've gone through, and then it turns it and frames it. Now, to me, that's quite an interesting creative i.e. creator economy idea, and much more um, interesting than just saying, oh, I'm, I've got millions of followers, so I'll do a video and, and a course on teaching you how to do the same. So, yeah, I'd be interested to see whether they interview people who've genuinely created creative businesses or whether it's just people who are saying, hey, look at me, I'm a great YouTuber, here's how to be a great YouTuber as well. I could not agree more. And I hope also they mix it up with uh, B2B because I don't think that mm. there's enough conversations about that, about that knowledge mm. industry as well. Um, and, and for me, you know, if they're all they're going to do is interview those shouty, narcissistic people, uh, amount um, in terms of, of, of the podcast because it has a little value. But if genuinely somebody's saying this is the, the business development strategy, this is what we did to or, um, shape and craft, you know, the, the 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 customer offer and more, that could be very very interesting. But um, yeah, we, we, you and I have shared many uh, our views very frankly about YouTubers and influencers. So very very quickly, moving on to my news about Roku, the streaming and tech company with Shopify, which means that you could be watching a, um, a film and either before, during and after, there will be some advertising spots to be able to buy items that perhaps are present in the movie and more. Is that disrupting to you? Is that what you call disruptive marketing or is it very oh. clever and it was only a matter of time? It's it was it's very clever and it was all, always a matter of time. But yes, it is disruptive. And sometimes I think we've just got to say enough. Um, and again, you and I have had this discussion on many occasions. Digital marketing has been a phenomenon over the last decade. And yes, it makes advertising accessible to everybody, not just those people who have massive budgets. But with the accessibility, I think comes care for your customer and it can be really really annoying if you're watching something and you're constantly getting 
interrupted by adverts. You know, I try to read a news item on a news media website and I'm constantly having to fight against all the pop-up boxes that come and the videos that pop up and the other boxes that pop up. And if I'm watching a YouTube video, yeah, I know I can, I could pay not to have the ads, but I choose not to, so I have to put up with them. But sometimes you think, oh, for goodness sake, it was only 90 seconds since the last one. So think about your customer before you start doing this. And I always start from this premise. If me as a customer gets annoyed by this sort of interruption, then why should I as a marketer think it's okay to do it to my customers? And I'd really like people to think about that before they press the button on a campaign like this. I think if it was designed, and of course we don't have the details just yet, but if it was ultimately almost like a add-on at the end of the film, as part of the, the Roku membership or, or kind of the experience where you watched a, a movie, and at the end of the movie, after the, the closing credits, there's a page or there's a short advert to say, there was a car, there was a, an item of clothing, there was a perfume, there was all some things that frankly you've, you spotted anyway, and there's a way for you to purchase it. I um, I would probably cope with that, but if it's literally, I can imagine a pop-up in the middle, middle of the film or at the very beginning before you can watch your favorite action film, there's a whole series of adverts saying, or oh, the, the leather jacket worn by Tom Cruise, you can buy it here, and this car, this perfume, and more. It'd just be, um, I think, to the point where those 55 million active accounts will start to disappear because my position would be I pay for a streaming service for the peace and quiet away from advertisers. Ultimately, that's yeah. also what I'm paying for, to be frank with you, Roger. And if that's being taken away from me, I'll go elsewhere. Yeah, and every time an advertiser comes up with a way of advertising, somebody else has to come up with a way of avoiding it. So, you know, on TV, if you don't want to watch the adverts, you, you watch it quarter of an hour later and use the fast forward. Um, because you love effectively buffered it you know i'm going to see the new james bond film tomorrow um, and and oh yeah and i know that the cinema say the film starts at 1440 but we know that the actual film itself won't start until about quarter past three because there'll be a whole mass of adverts before plus there'll be the trailers for the films to come. So we'll probably aim to get to the cinema about three o'clock so that we miss the advert adverts. We don't mind watching the trailers for the movies to come. Um, so people will compensate for it eventually if you annoy them. So why annoy them in the first place? Absolutely. Well, that was a bit of a rant uh, element of, of the show. So let's move towards the rave side of the show with the content spotlights. <music> Now, in this segment of the show, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video that can really help us reflect what it means to be a marketer in the 21st century. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? Well, Pascal, this week I'm going to talk about an article written by a lady called Cathy Thorndike, and the heading of the article is 11 subject lines that will get a person you've never met to open your email. Now, this is quite interesting given what we've just talked about, about not being interrupted by annoying advertising. I think it's also fair to say that most of us are bombarded daily with loads and loads of emails either from lists that we subscribe to or from 
brands that we've interacted with. And, you know, it seems to me that on a daily basis, I'm swiping through my emails and just delete, 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 because I'm getting so many emails from all of these people. Now, sometimes it gets to the stage where I, where I will actually unsubscribe from a list if I feel that I'm getting, you know, sometimes one a day feels too much. Two or three a day definitely feels too much. And, you know, sometimes they really do take it to the extreme of sort of seven or eight emails a day in the run-up to a webinar or something like that. So this is very, very tricky to introduce this sort of topic because, again, I'm always thinking we should take care of our customers. And if our customers are finding emails annoying, then should I really be doing a spotlight on an article which effectively gives you a few hacks and and maybe even some sort of emotional triggers that you can use in your emails to try to get people to open them. So I'm just prefacing this by saying that, you know, let's use these ideas. And I'm doing this article because I like the article and I like the ideas. But let's preface it by saying there's a lot of annoying email stuff out there. So let's not use this article as a means to amplify the number of annoying emails. But let's face it, when you're scrolling through your inbox, and if you are getting a lot of emails from people that you've subscribed to and brands, it's very likely that the heading is the only thing you're actually going to read before you delete it. It's likely that if you don't get further than the subject heading, then you will have deleted the email without reading any of it. So it's very, very important to try and make sure that that headline strikes the reader. It grabs their attention. You know, it's the first part of the old famous ADA, isn't it? Attention, interest, desire, action. You've got to attract their attention. And this article, as as it says, 11 subject lines, and they're just once again, Pascal, remarkably simple, but really, really interesting. I'm not going to read all, all 11 of them out, so I'm going to put the um, link in the show notes so that everybody can find the article themselves and have a read of it. But I will just say a few. Now, the first one, again, just remarkably simple. Put something in the headline to remind somebody that you might actually know them via somebody else. So the suggestion here is saying hello via Jane Smith. Or I could write to somebody that we both know and say, saying hello via Pascal Fintonia. Now, you're sort of using somebody else without their permission, or hopefully you get their permission. But again, if somebody sees the name of somebody that they know, and you do have an association, then maybe it's more likely that they will actually open the email. Now, I do this quite a lot, but in reality, I tend to do it in the opening paragraph of the um, email itself. So I might say, uh, you and I had a chat when Pascal introduced us at the CMA conference last year, something like that. But if you think about it, if people aren't getting past the subject line, they might not actually get to read that paragraph. And Here's another one. This might be quite useful in a B2B scenario. Looking to hear more after your article in journal ABC. So here you use the fact that you've read or consumed, watched some content of the person that you're looking to get in touch with, and you refer to that in 
the head, headline. So I'm looking to hear more about your article about writing email headlines. And again, it adds that just that little personal touch. A variation on that could be something like your LinkedIn article inspired me to reach out. Although, of course, we know that you don't reach out <laughs> to people unless you're a member of the four tops, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that one aside. So I'm not going to read any more out, Pascal. I think I just want to encourage people to read this article. It's got some really good ideas. They're very simple ideas. And I'll just repeat what I started with and saying, let's not use these almost like psychological ways of getting people to open emails to increase the amount of spam we sent out. But let's make sure that if we have got some great stuff that we want to communicate, well, you might be able to use these headings to make people sit up and take note. Oh, thank you very much, Roger. And you know what's interesting is yesterday I had to send an email to somebody in France that I've not spoken to for three years, and I was struggling for a subject line. If only, if only we'd recorded, <laughs> you know, two gigs a day earlier. Because I think, you, like you, eventually I got around to this idea, what's the context? Because I think that's what you're telling us, thanks to the work from, from Katie, which is, Ultimately, if we've learned anything from the current pandemic, although there are signs of improvements on part of the world, it's this need for real, meaningful human connection. And the subject line should carry that over. And you and I will be the first one to, to declare that marketers spoil everything, particularly email subject line with the, the kind of pushy uh, marketing efforts that we've seen over, over the last um, few years. So I think it's wonderful. And I can imagine someone doing an exercise where they may go through the 11th subject line and back to your comment, adapt and adjust to their circumstance, their sector, and their audience, but always learning ways to make somebody reimagine, oh, right, I, I see the connections, I see the context, and I'm more likely to, to read on. That's wonderful. Well, we're going to move on from email to video content, if you don't mind, Roger. Mm. For this week, I want to carry on almost this little journey of rediscovery of visual storytelling. Remember a few weeks ago, we spoke about camera movement and what you could do to really amplify some of your key messages. Well, because I am in a lovely part of the world, as you mentioned during the introduction, I'm going to get back to doing some vlogging. If, if there is a language as part of vlogging that is very interesting to play with is transitions, creating a sense of um, a different time and space in between two shots. So you can begin from stepping inside your car and then you arrive by, by the, the beach. But how did you do that? And I came across this video called Five Easy Vlog Transitions You Can Try Today by Daniel DeArco. Now, two reasons why I chose this one. Daniel DeArco has got a lovely YouTube channel where he does things around vlogging, but also how to do some DIY kit that can help you actually create movement with your camera. He's very passionate, but what I like about it, unlike some of the YouTubers you know, I mentioned earlier, he's not that kind of shouty, um, self-centered individual. He's calmly creating content and calmly explaining how to do things. And actually, if you just watch the work and if you watch the, the scenes, the way they are being edited, the way they're being filmed and so on, you learn an enormous amount from that. So I wanted to say thank you, Daniel. But the um, vlog transitions, uh, are kind of well known, but always, you know, I think, forgotten. And back to my point earlier, you should to, you should prepare and have that storyboarded. So the number one option would be to cover the lens. So you could start from the house and you could put your hand on the lens and then you go out, perhaps in your case, one of your favorite historical venues, and then you put your hand on the lens and start filming again. 
And one of the reasons I like this video a lot as well, Roger, is that all those transitions can be easily edited with a crossfade or a, a speed up. So there's no need to really uh, spend time on the editing side. So the cover of the lens is one that I've used a lot. It's very, very good. You have something which is called the camera shake or the camera rush, which is almost like a, a, a kind of speed up of the camera. So the example is your camera could be on the desk and you grab it quickly and raise it vertically. And then you go to a different venue and you repeat the, the movement and then you cut at the halfway point. And literally the human eye believed that, you know, it's a magical transition. Is also done a similar version of the cover of the lens using texture or what they call mediums such as water. So in in the video which you, you will see, I've got the link below. It's lovely. He's having a drink of water. He's talking about uh, going to the beach. Then using his GoPro, he puts the GoPro under the tap, and the water is gushing through. Next shot, he's got the GoPro inside the the sea, and he raises it again towards his face. So you have this transition from the the tap running from the the, the water running from the tap, sorry, to the wave crashing against the camera it's just beautiful but trying to find ways in which you can use texture what i've used before is when my camera lens protected is hitting um, leaves on on the branch of a tree and i'll do it again in a different location it looks as though i've traveled miles in a, in a few seconds one that I'd love for you to try, actually, Roger, is the twirl or rotating the camera 360 on its axis. So imagine that you're able to, with a strap or with movement of your arm, to rotate the camera 180 to begin with, and then you finish with another 180 in a different location, and then you have traveled in your different time and space. And then the final one that's presenting this video, which I think is fun, is the whip pan. So you walk towards your camera, you pretend to actually hit the camera lens with your hand. But in fact, you stop just before and just push it ever so slightly. You repeat the same movement in a different location. And once again, as if by magic, you have traveled somewhere else. And those transitions, I think, are so unique to vlogging. Shouldn't abuse of them, certainly, but they're part of that visual storytelling. This is so good. Um, funnily enough, Pascal, I had my first trip to London yesterday uh -huh. in 19 months. So I was on an aeroplane for the first time in 19 months. I was down in London for meetings for the first time in 19 months. But I also said to myself, you are going to work tomorrow on some vlogs and I am so pleased with myself because yesterday I filmed enough footage for three vlogs oh. so I've got a travel from Edinburgh to London video that I can do I've got a let's wander around London looking at skyscrapers uh, vlog and then I've got a let's travel from London back to Edinburgh vlog now I guess I could do all a, a, a big vlog in, involving all three of those but I think I might do three separate ones but it's like I mean as a filmmaker you you know, you are a filmmaker. I sometimes don't know how you manage to keep track of everything that needs to be kept track of. Because yesterday, yes, I'm conscious of making sure that I get a nice frame to the shot or I try to do it from a, a different angle than most people would do from low down or from, you know, from a side or use the lines of buildings to, to create a frame and things like that. But transitions is one of those things that I constantly forget about. And I know most of the ones that you've told. I love the sort of the uh, the cover the lens one. I love the the one where you, you move through 180 degrees. But the number of times that I actually do it is minimal because I always forget. So this is a timely reminder.
Thank you very much. And and you're right. It's the challenge for many of us content creators is the remembering of all the things that are percolated in our heads. Hence why sometimes we should go the old-fashioned way, a checklist on a notepad or you know a little a list of things to do on your mobile phone. Talking of which, Roger, that gives me a wonderful segue to move on to our next segment, Marketing Tech and Apps. So, Roger, what have you found that can make life easier for all of us content creators? Well, this naturally follows on exactly from what we've just been talking about. So yesterday, as I said, I was I was filming, um, and yesterday I was filming using the camera that I spoke about on uh, the show a few weeks ago, my Osmo Pocket 2, which is absolutely remarkable. As If you remember, it's a very small camera with a gimbal on it, and it creates the most steady, beautiful 4K um, images that I've almost ever seen and you know I'm, I'm almost at the stage now I'm thinking I'd, I might not even need to carry my Lumix around with me <laughs> anymore you know this this thing is so good the one disadvantage that it has is that it does have a fixed aperture which means that if it's a sunny day which it wasn't yesterday um, if it's a sunny day or if it's a very bright day then the image can become overblown and what you'd have to do to compensate for that would be to increase the shutter speed now if you increase the shutter speed above a certain level it can make the film look a little bit juddery because you don't get that natural sort of blurry movement if somebody's waving their hands about like that it becomes much more blocky because the higher shutter speed effectively makes it look like a sort of um, freeze frame effect um, what you ideally want to do as you as a filmmaker you know better than I do is to have your shutter speed set to about twice the frame rate so if you're filming at 24 frames per second set it to 50 uh, or if you're set, doing it at 50 set it to 100 the problem is is if you do that on the Osmo and it's a bright day then the, the picture will be overexposed so I came across these ND filters, which are effectively sunglasses for cameras that you can actually just clip onto the um, Osmo. And the make of um, filter that I've found is newer. And I've mentioned newer before on the show because the light that's illuminating my face so lovely on this uh, video today is a newer light as well. And when I bought this, I realized that this company, newer, actually create ND filters for pretty much any range of cameras not just the dji osmo pocket 2 so if you did want to buy an nd filter for your lumix camera you'd be able to buy one from newer as well the second thing as i'm into gimbals now um <laughs> and, and 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 again it's it, you know because i bought something from dji i now seem to get dji adverts in my facebook feed and just about everywhere else and they have they have just launched the osmo mobile 3 gimbal which is a gimbal for mobile phones. So it doesn't matter whether it's an iPhone or an Android. This thing is absolutely remarkable. It effectively turns your mobile into the same thing as the little little gimbal on the top of the Osmo Pocket. And from what I've seen, it creates incredible smooth footage. So if you are using your mobile phone but you want to have that much steadier feel to your videos then you could do worse than having a look at the osmo mobile gimbal 3 
they've always uh, done very well, the Osmo Mobile mm. Gimbal. But for me, I always think, or oh, maybe the next one's going to be better. So I've always been putting off <laughs> buying it. But uh, I think you may have convinced me because, um, you know, I, I brought the, the Lumix with me to France as my mobile phone. And I was going to try and, and do different things with it. But there's nothing like a, a really well-balanced, smooth shot and well-framed. And, and those DJI Mobile Gimbal, they do an amazing job indeed. So can't wait to see the, you know, the edited version, mind of your trip to london yeah i'm, I'm hoping um I, i'm going to spread it out over a few weeks obviously and, and it, it feels good to actually have enough footage in the bag in the can i guess to to actually be able to do a number of vlogs rather than thinking well i've done one and now i've got to go out and film another one so i'm feeling pretty pretty um, um chuffed with myself <laughs> yeah nothing like batching content so for me <laughs> bear in mind you know the fact that i am in france for the next few weeks it's all about online translation in terms of the marketing tech and apps uh, roger i realize there's going to be a minimum number of people listening that would be in need of that but actually there's one that may surprise you so I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I had to send an email a few, uh, two days ago uh, in French to someone I've not spoken to for a while to connect with them and, and secure a meeting. And a couple of times I got stuck with how do they say that in French, which I know will be uh, a strange thing for me to say, but understand I've left 30 years ago, all of you, and my French is rusty. People said to me, I'm bilingual. I said, no, my second language is French now. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> There is an amazing website called Lingui.com, Lingui double E at the end. It's an online dictionary, but it has a very, very nice feature, which is if you're stuck with an expression or if you're not sure how you would say it, even in English for that matter, you put this into the search box. Not only does it give you translation, but it gives you many examples of where those words or sentences could be found in a paragraph. And that could be a marketing manual, that could be a, a technical, that could be a minutes of meetings. So what they've been able to do is show you the words in context. Back to that again, Roger. So I was able to pick the best translation because I could read a whole paragraph and say, well, that's exactly what I mean to say. Why is it important? Because when you have languages, there are nuances, cultural differences you mentioned i'm very envious you're going to see james bond tomorrow is that correct at the time of recording it is I am, yes i am very jealous and i'll have to wait till i come back because i have to watch it in the original language you understand now the title <laughs> of the james movie is no time to die in french if you translate word for word saying dying can wait <laughs> and so can you see how the nuances are so, so important and therefore translating word for word doesn't work if you want to make that connection. So lingui.com for all of you looking for translating from your native language to English or English to a different language or even to understand an email you receive from someone from overseas. Now, the final um, tech for this week is one that I'm very pleased about. So... I'm giving presentations as you are uh, remotely. We, um, I'm looking also to communicate and sometimes been in the meetings in France where Denise, my wife, may not be able to understand. And she could do with a mobile uh, app that will translate the conversation almost live. And we have been using Google Translate for a while, but it is a bit clunky. Microsoft came up with something a while back, but they've not told anybody, of course, Microsoft Live Translator. So this is how it works, Roger. If you and I were in, in France and you wanted to attend a, a marketing meeting, I will send you a PIN number to the Microsoft Live Translator. My phone would obviously you know, um, record, if you will, or capture the sound in French, and your phone would caption on, live on your screen the version in English. 
and you'll be able to therefore attend the meeting. And of course, the reverse is also true. If you wanted to reply in English and for the French you know, business connections to read in French, they could do the same. But this is where it becomes interesting. What if, frankly, this is not about language translation, but captioning? So you and I are delivering a webinar about maybe hybrid events, why not? And people who are listening to this cannot have you know, the sound on, but they could just plug their phone and have the translation captioning to an English. It could be someone who is traveling and so many di different things. So I'm going to have a right play with this Microsoft Live Translator because I think it's really interesting, but not just for translation, but just live captioning for circumstances that will uh, require it. This is a really interesting. Again, I love the first one. Thinking, Just thinking about the differences in titles of, of movies. I've never really thought of that before, though I do remember back in the depths of time thinking about Star Wars. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm trying to think now um, without without being able to look it up. In French, Star Wars is something like, is it La Guerre de les Galaxies or something uh, like that? Pretty close. La Guerre des Etoiles. So it's the war oh, of the, the stars. Oh, the Guerre de les yeah, actually, I'm, I'm probably mixing up the the Spanish one is like La Guerra de las Galaxias, isn't it? Mm. So yeah, so so basically, in in the literal translation of the French title is the War of the of the Stars, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Star Wars. Uh, so again, it just shows you that those little nuances. So great, great suggestions there, Pascal. Love them both. <laughs> Thank you very much. And just funny that they they happen to come across my desk because of my own kind of uh, efforts here back in France. As we say all the time, Roger, none of this would be possible without pioneers and visionaries from the recent and distant past. We have a very special This Week in History. Clive Sinclair was born on the 30th of July 1940 in Ealing. As a child, he developed a keen interest in mathematics and electronics. At the age of 18, he set up a mail-order business selling miniature electronic kits to the hobby market. One year later, Clive Sinclair became a published author with over 16 practical electronics handbooks written over a three-year period. Goodness, in the 1960s, the world's smallest pocket AM radio, the Mat 100, was launched and sold for over seven shillings. In 1972, the Sinclair Executive Pocket Calculator was launched, followed by the ill-fated digital black watch wristwatch in 1975. In 1978, after launching Science of Cambridge Limited, Clive Sinclair invented a microprocessor teaching kit called the MK14, priced at £39.95. As a follow-up, he began work on the ZX80, and the computer was launched in February 1980 at £79.95 in kit form and £99.95 ready-built. Mm, in an attempt to win a lucrative BBC contract, Clive Sinclair pushed the development of the Sinclair ZX81. Both computers became the highest-selling brands of computers across the UK, the US, and parts of Japan. In April 1982, the ZX Spectrum was launched and gave rise to the start of the UK's video gaming industry. By 1984, over 3,500 games had been released for the ZX Spectrum by so-called bedroom coders. The ZX Spectrum went on to become the UK's highest-selling computer, selling more than 5 million units before it was discontinued in 1992. In 1983, the Sinclair FTV-1, the long-awaited flat-screen pocket television, is launched. It was only available via mail order for under £100. 
In January 1985, the Sinclair C5 electric vehicle is launched, widely criticized and ridiculed for its high price, toy-like appearance and lack of safety features. The C5 line was terminated in August that same year. In 1992, Clive Sinclair invented the Zyke electric bike, selling just 2,000 units. Five years later, he invented the Sinclair X1, a radio the size of a 10p coin. Oh goodness, in 2003, Sinclair collaborated with Hong Kong-based firm DAC on the sea scooter and the wheelchair drive. In 2010, the Sinclair X-1 is announced, a two-wheel electronic vehicle incorporating as design aspects of the Sinclair C5. And we'll close with a quote from the Times newspaper describing Sinclair as a tenacious inventor whose career was a triumph of perseverance similar to that of many Britain's greatest inventors such as Sir James Dyson and Alexander Graham Bell, who are a reminder that failure is an essential prelude to success. Wow, wow. that was an incredible trip down memory lane, Pascal, wasn't it? Incredible. I'm, I'm really thank you, Roger. I'm really pleased we did that. You know, we will do it occasionally. I think as part of uh, this segment. But you and I discussed it last week because, fortunately, Sir Clive Sinclair passed away a couple of weeks ago, and we just felt that was just the right thing to do to remind ourselves about his incredible contribution. But yeah, tenacity and perseverance. Yeah, I, I can remember way back in the early 80s, um, I was at school, I was getting into computers. One of our science teachers had a computer called a Research Machines 380Z. And, you know, you had to load the programming language using a cassette tape. Um, but I remember asking my dad if I could have a, re a Research Machines 380Z, and they were about four grand at the time. And then the Co Commodore came out with this thing called the PET personal computer, which really Really looked quite cool and eat but those were about 800 quid and I and my dad says just you've just got no chance and then all of a sudden here was a computer for less than 100 pounds and I'm just thinking I've got to be able to get a computer now and I think finally in the end I got a, Z, a, a ZX Spectrum but I still missed out on the ZX80 and the ZX81. Mm. And people are, are looking for those collectors around the world are looking for those spending you know quite a bit more than that. Have you ever partake in the game design, so, so to speak, where you know you and I could, as you mentioned, upload the game via cassette, open the program, which was in basic language, and then tweak it and then claim you were a game designer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, in my in my early days when I was um, on. Uh, ZX Spectrums and um, I had a Commodore 64 as well I did use to program uh, I remember trying to create my own version of things like Defender and Pac-Man just by you know you used to have to plot the graphic in a certain place and then move it you know one space and then move it again and obviously that in the same way as a film is individual frames you just have to create the individual movement so yeah it never turned into a career in the end but uh, it was fun it was fun whilst it lasted <laughs> so we had some early version of role-playing games on the auric atmos but still using the basic language and with my brother yannick we used to try i suppose we're hackers back thinking about it now roger and so we managed to almost invent our own role-playing game by just changing words here or there and changing you know descriptions but it was still a wonderful learning experience but my brother yannick um, managed to create a dungeons and dragons character creation program where you would put some <laughs> some of the the values from your d20 and then 
because you had a database of names and more and races, you were able to come up with with a, a character. And um, but do you remember those computers were were plugged to um, TVs, so we had a small portable black and white TV, and that was what we used to be able to see what we were doing. Yeah, and of course, the worst thing was that when you were right in the middle of a game, oh. and it was time for, time for Coronation Street, and my mum would come <laughs> in and say, "You're gonna have to turn that off now." <laughs> and so, what you'd you'd have to do is you'd unplug the uh, wire from the back of the TV to plug the aerial back in, and hope yes. that the, the computer would stay paused all the way through Coronation Street until after it finished, and then you'd plug it back in and carry on. <laughs> very, very true. Now, I knew someone who had the Sinclair FT. <laughs> V1 flat screen pocket television and mm. the term pocket um, is an understatement it was so small honestly it was really hard to imagine all of you a screen that was even smaller than a mobile phone it was really really tough but uh, you could watch certainly French television um, you had to move the aerial around or change position <laughs> around the room to capture the, the signal. And I suppose for people who are traveling, as was the case, it, it was okay, but um, not something you could watch for a very long period of time. You know, we always say at the beginning of the Week in History section how we really owe a debt to people like Clive Sinclair. But when you think about the Spectrum, the ZX81, and, some of, and in the flat... These were the precursors to so much of what we rely upon today and so much of the entertainment that we enjoy today can trace its roots back to some of his inventions. Indeed, and we quoted the, the Times newspaper. This was, there was articles and obituaries all over the internet and so many high-profile celebrities you know, from the world of tech and more saying, I began my passion for what I do today as an adult thanks to the ZX Spectrum and the gaming and the camaraderie and, and the networks that were created. So yes, I hope that his name will, be, will continue to appear in history books and more because his contribution and ultimately putting the UK on the map of the world of, of tech and the internet was, is very important. Indeed, yeah. So I'm Oh, there must be a, a ZX Spectrum emulator out there on the internet. I might just go and have a look for it after this. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's continue the celebration, Roger, with our creator's shout-out. So, Roger, who is in the spotlight for you in this week's creator's shout-out? Well, Pascal, this week I'm going to give a shout-out for my accountant. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there, there's a reason for this, and, and it's a LinkedIn reason. Now, I don't know about you, Pascal, but recently I've noticed that there are some quite grumpy people on LinkedIn uh, having a moan about people posting personal stuff. You know, they sort of say, LinkedIn is a, and then I'm using inverted commas with my hands here, with my fingers. LinkedIn is a professional platform and you shouldn't be talking about your family on LinkedIn. You shouldn't be posting pictures of your cats on LinkedIn. You shouldn't be posting pictures of fabulous French beaches in your LinkedIn. And I get really annoyed by this because First of all, what does professional really mean? Does that does it mean that you have to be wearing a suit and tie when you post on LinkedIn or that you have to have been in business for a certain amount of time? I think it's just an excuse for people to 
just be grumpy and, and to troll people, to be perfectly honest. My view is that if you want to post something personal on LinkedIn, go ahead and do it. Absolutely go ahead and do it. And for those people who don't like it, then we'll either unfollow that person or, or just ignore it. You know, don't wade in and try to make them feel guilty. Um, so I, I do believe that LinkedIn should be a nice mix of business and personal because I actually quite like to get to know the people that I do business with. I like to know what gets them tick. I like to see behind the scenes as, as to what's going on. And Hannah Campbell is my accountant. She works for a, a franchise business um, up here in Scotland called Tax Assist Accountants. And she has got this great knack of mixing business and personal posts on LinkedIn. And for anybody out there who is in that grumpy mode saying LinkedIn is professional, blah de blah de blah I would just take a moment and actually look at the following that Hannah's created for herself and her business on LinkedIn, and I bet it beats quite a lot of those grumpy people who keep having a go at people who do this. And I think it absolutely vindicates that balance between business and personal because it shows somebody is human. It shows them that they may have um, doubts and imposter syndrome or whatever it might be, as well as skills and expertise. And I think it makes people much more believable and much much more engaging. That's why I like the, the mix of business and personal. So great big, big shout out to Hannah Campbell for doing great work on LinkedIn and also, of course, for doing my accounts and keeping me out of prison as well. <laughs> very, very yeah. good, Roger. A wonderful addition once again to create a shout out. So for me, this was about actually gratefulness and being grateful to Sarah Clark, the UK editor of Think with Google and her team, both in the UK and globally. Now, Think with Google is this online resource with insights, trends, and research papers produced by the Google team. And you can also select different nations and different parts of the world. And primarily, as you'll understand, Roger, about digital media and marketing. The reason I'm grateful is because I read those papers, and without fail, I always retrieve a stat or a graphic and so on that I can use in my courses or my public speaking. And I don't know, I just felt recently thinking, I've never actually thanked them. And I know that we would favor you and I, entrepreneurs and small brands and small businesses, but just because it's Google shouldn't be the case that they should be excluded from the creator's shout out. So what they do, and if, you've, if you don't know Think with Google, any of you, please go and check it out. I've got the link in the show notes. You will probably be redirected directly to the part of the world where you belong. So if you're from Australia, from the Middle East, and so on, but you can also look at that. And they look at consumer insights. Indeed, actually, the stats that you read in the, in the news came from that. They look at marketing strategies, which I know is very important to you, Roger and I. <laughs> the future of marketing and the role that AI, machine learning, and more will play and the tools from the you know kind of popular Google trends all the way to lesser known Google tools. And then you end up with papers, articles, videos, and more with titles such as, we asked 7,000 Europeans about ads and privacy, here's what they told us. Or marketing mixed models are rooted in science, but we also need a touch of art. The future of commerce is here, are you ready, question mark. And so it goes on. So they, they as much as 
the title and maybe the thing with Google and, and so on may suggest that it's long form, hard work content to get through. They've done an amazing job to break it down with visuals. Sometimes it's been translated into um, animated stories and so on. And if you are serious, really, frankly, about your profession, it's just one additional resource you should consult uh, from time to time. So once again, Sarah Clark, UK editor of Think with Google. Thank you to you, your team, for making my life easier as a trainer uh, and a speaker, but also to keep being a source of inspiration for Roger and I. No, great shout out, Pascal. And I'm pretty sure that not Sarah herself, but the resource itself, I think I might have even mentioned this in Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans. So Ooh, there you go. There you go then. Thank you very much. <laughs> Right, Roger, where we mentioned it during the introduction part of this episode of Two Geeks and Martin podcast, we may be talking, you and I, about one of the finest adaptation of a Stephen King book. Let's move on to film marketing. So, Roger, we are talking today about the marketing campaign that supported this movie called Misery, released in 1990 in the US and 91 in the UK. Let's remind ourselves about this masterpiece with the trailer. He almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. I know you've been out. Is this what you're looking for? Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's sake. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you. Oh my goodness, Roger. So, did it all come back to you? Did you see Misery in the 90s? Yes, we went to the cinema to see this film, absolutely. And it was one of those edge-of-the-seat, pin-drop-type films, wasn't it? I mean, again, we don't want to give the plot away for those of you who've not seen it, but this is definitely a tense 
film, the suspense that the director builds up in this film as this character tries to just one tries to maneuver himself around the house that he's been imprisoned in and whilst his his captor is out shopping believe it or not and he sort of tries to get out of his room and 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 wander around the house before she gets back i mean the tension was absolutely palpable edge of the seat stuff Absolutely. Interestingly, for international um, viewers and listeners, we have a program in the UK called Google Box, which is pretty much um, people watching movies and TV programs reacting. And somehow we enjoy watching their reactions. And a few weeks ago, the um, the participants of the Google Box program were made to watch Misery. And oddly, many of them had not seen it. So they were watching it for the first time. And yes, they jumped out all the right places, should I say. They screamed and they cheered on. This poor character played by James Cann, who is a prisoner inside this house, and being nursed, we think, by the character played by Kathy Bates. And, I mean, even till the very, very last moment, you still don't know whether he's going to be successful. And the tension is truly, truly incredible. Uh, again, one, we find ourselves tricky because if we mention any more about this film, we're going to give too many things away for people that have not seen this. But let me tell you, for example, that this film was um, listed in so many different things. So we had the American Film Institute looking at hundred years of heroes and villains, and the character played by Kathy Bates called Annie was ranked number seventeen villain in <laughs> over you know, things. So and of course um, she won an Academy Award uh, for her performance, which says a lot, doesn't it? It does indeed, yeah. And and honestly, such a scary, scary performance genuinely and she deserves that seventeenth ranking I have to say. You know, there are there are certain big villains in bigger films since that aren't as scary as she is um, and I do remember it was the sort of stuff of nightmares you know to see her standing at the bottom of your bed staring down at you saying you dirty birdie wow <laughs> mm. I've got a little confession to make and then we'll move on to the marketing that's okay so we okay. went to see this um, in France it came out on the 13th of February 1991 not your ideal uh, Valentine's Day movie I can guarantee you any of you <laughs> so we went with a group of friends I think we were still at the university at the time and one of our friends got really really scared scared by the film it just got under her skin big time i mean we got scared but after a while we recovered from it so we were very very mean and what we used to do for weeks on end honestly roger we used to put pictures of kathy bates in her letterbox <laughs> with, a, with a sentence i am your number one fan and she really really was so upset with us but we thought it was hilarious looking back now oh. i think it was very very mean we should have stopped after maybe a couple of times not just carry on the joke for weeks on end but you're right she was so iconic as a villain that people like my, my dear friend and many others would still remember her yeah, absolutely. And and she's now gone on to, I mean, she was relatively unknown at the time. Um, mm. She's recently appeared in several seasons of uh, the American Horror Show, um, American Horror Story. Uh, and she's equally scary in, tho- in those as well. So she, she obviously tapped into her inner demons. <laughs> very, very true. So this movie came out in 1990, so years before the internet was uh, publicly available to the degree that we understand now. So what we had really was the... Um, 
you know, traditional, as I would call it, movie marketing pack, and of course, extensive PR coverage in print, media, TV, and, and radio. Can we quickly talk about the poster? Mm. And mm. just pretty much say that's all we had in 1990, 1991, this poster being featured outside of our favorite movie theaters. Yeah, and it's a it's an incredible poster for many reasons. There's not much to it, is the Pascal? There's a very small house that looks like it's in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of a snow blizzard. But that single image really does sum up how claustrophobic the entire film is and how tense the entire film is. And, and let's face it, the majority of the film happens in one room of that house. And yes, the character does get out of the room occasionally and there's a few external scenes, but the majority of the film takes place in that one room. And the poster, to me, sums up that claustrophobic nature. Yeah, absolutely. It's making a wonderful use, you would expect it, of uh, the rule of thirds as well, whereby yeah. the top third, which we'll come on to in a moment, is almost this is the the way to get out, but you are trapped by the mountains, you are trapped inside mm. the house. There's uh, a window with a light coming through, and we can't tell whether it's James Khan character or Kathy Betts. I was um, reflecting actually on this yesterday. It has some inkling of the 10 Cloverfield Lane poster that you and I reviewed uh, some time ago and i like to think that this maybe was inspiration and then the title misery it only occurred to me much much later after watching the film that this is in fact a kind of smudged version of a typewriter lettering of you know misery and that we have the, the characters uh, well the, the actors james can and kathy bates but really prominent at the top of the poster uh, would be the name of the director the name of the novelist and the name of the screenwriter really popping through the lighter, the top third of the, the poster. Yeah, and, and the reason for that, I believe, after doing some research, is that at the time, the movie makers and the marketing people didn't think that James Kahn and Kathy Bates were well enough known to actually carry the film. Um, now, James Kahn had been around quite a bit um, in his young years, I think he appeared in The Godfather originally, a yeah, yeah. uh, 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 character called Sonny, um, who met a pretty um, scary ending, if I believe, if I, if I remember correctly. But he'd sort of, I think he had all sorts of personal problems. He he turned down a load of film offers for some fairly high-profile films that um, went on to be very, very successful. And he probably regretted turning down, to be perfectly honest. But by the time Misery came along, James Kahn was almost a has-been. Nobody knew who he was. And Kathy Bates was more of a theatre um, star rather than a film star. So again, nobody knew who she was. But director Rob Rayner, who, funnily enough, we talked about in the last episode as the director of The Princess Bride, and he went on to uh, direct some even bigger films in, in later years, was well, very well known. Stephen King, probably at the time this came out, was in his absolute prime, churning out book after book after book, year after year after year. So one of the most famous novelists in the entire world. And, of course, screenwriter William Goldman, very well known as well. And I think that the marketers thought, we actually need to carry the movie on the strength of the director, the novelist, and the screenwriter, as opposed to 
the actual actors themselves. And I think that's really quite interesting. I think it's also refreshing and makes a lot of sense to me in the context of marketing a product mm. you know put forward the creators the inventors not just mm. the performers it's a bit and i mean this only because i'm trying to find an analogy and that might not work but putting forward you know you, you, your sales team for a product that was designed by somebody else and you need to have at least everybody put forward uh james can in france was known for yeah godfather maybe thief as well but yeah. we had um in france we have a lot of film festivals sci-fi film festival so do you remember alien nation he was yes, in Alien Nation. Yes. That was a good film. So so we knew him. Nobody knew Kathy Bates, I would argue, in France, bar those who were familiar with her work and TV series and, and theater. But we knew Rob Reiner. People had seen The Princess Bride, Stand By Me. Um, I can't recall whether when Harry Met Sally had been just before. But, you know, that, there was a few things here. Um, William Goldman is a name that I didn't appreciate. Uh, I knew his work as much as I did because he directed, well, he wrote one of my all-time favorite, The Ghost in the Darkness, which I yeah. didn't know was him. But we know that he was also behind Butch Cassidy and the Sandance Kid, uh, all the President's Men, which I must watch again. It was a long time ago. A bridge too far, Roger. I mean, that yes. was my Sunday with my, my parents. Chaplin, <laughs> uh, starring a very young Robert Downey Jr., and Absolute Power, wonderful Clint Eastwood. And the list goes on. Um, he also was a novelist, as well as being a screenplay. So I love this idea that in the 90s, the creators were put forward almost equally to, to the performers. That, that's just brilliant. No, and I, and I think it's absolutely right and absolutely well deserved. And uh, although it's very hard in me, to me for me to actually think of another film since where the focus has been as much on the creators as it is on the actual actors themselves. Yeah, you, you've got some exceptions, but um, mm. so as part of the marketing pack, so we we have the poster which we could all, all admire. So. Um, and I've spotted on the internet with something I'd forgotten. It's almost like an Easter egg on the poster, very much like in Ten Cloverfield Lane. Some people play with the contrast, manipulated the picture, which means that if you watch online, where there is a current on normal posters, this dark face of the mountain almost kind of um, imprisoning the, uh, the little house, if you play with the contrast, the word misery appears repeated over and over again on the the face of the, the mountain, the cliff, leading people to to say there was a link between misery and The Shining. Ooh, now when I actually, I actually look at that now, that I've, I didn't notice that before. That is incredible, isn't it? I can see it just there. So what's the link with The Shining then? So Red Rock. Is that the, mount, the mountains, yeah. So when his, his wife is checking what he's been working on and all she can see yeah. is Red Rum repeated Red over Rum. and over again. And Here over you have again. The, the misery. And then fans mm. of Stephen King and movies saying there's, um, even when um, Kathy based Annie talks, there's a hint to the hotel in The Shining and there's a hint to Pet Cemetery as well. Maybe for others to, to <laughs> let us know. But just to close on the marketing, as part of the marketing pack, you know, you and I are very fond of good strap lines. Sometimes they're just mm, like an example mm. to follow. And for this film, they went for Paul Sheldon used to write for a living. Now he's writing to stay alive. Yeah, that's, again, beautifully simple, beautifully simple. And what, do we, what, do we, what did we think of the trailer, Pascal? I mean, again, it's... It is one of those films where they really have to be careful about giving too much away. And I think they just about managed to create a trailer which had an example of the, of the sort of suspense and the tension that the film has, 
but they don't blow the plot. I think they sort of suggest that one of the, the, the scariest moments, the hobbling scene, which mm. that's all, that's all I'm going to say about it, the <laughs> hobbling scene. Um, it's hinted at in the trailer, but not blown. But I think they probably did take it as far as they could do without ruining the plot for people. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it all, it all worked very well. And I would imagine Rob Reiner had a, a say in that because all his work is so focused on the people element. In fact, to my knowledge, he's not done any other... Would you say this is a horror film? I don't think he's done anyone, uh, another scary film to that degree uh, since. Uh, that's not to uh, discredit him. It's just, obviously, he's such a multi-talented and multifaceted storyteller. But this infamous hobbling scene, which uh, is quite something, was voted the 12th scariest scene by the Bravo TV channel in 2004. Now, that's interesting. Now, here's a piece of information you might not know, Pascal, a pub fact for you. Mm-hmm. Stephen King did actually write a series of books under a pseudonym for quite a while. He, he wrote books under the um, pseudonym of Richard Batchman. Uh, 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 the Long Walk is one of them, and The Running Man is another one oh, that he right. wrote under the pseudonym of Richard Batchman. And one of the reasons he wrote under the pseudonym was, A, he wanted to see whether he could write a book under a different name and it was it would be equally successful just to prove to himself that it wasn't just now his name selling books and secondly he published books that weren't really horror stories under that pseudonym so they were more just suspense or um in the case of the running man that was more like a futuristic science fiction style series and misery was going to be a richard batchman book but he got outed uh, before it was published. <laughs> and when it was published, it then got published under Stephen King's name. And that's probably the reason why it isn't actually a horror film, because it was originally going to be published under his pseudonym. Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't know that at all. But um, yeah. I bet he's pleased this happened. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we started by saying that this may be the finest adaptation of a Stephen King book. So I'm going to ask you the question just as we close this episode of Two Geeks of Martin podcast. Is it to you the best one or is there another one that you favour? It's difficult, Pascal, because well, let's let's be honest. There are some absolute clunker um, <laughs> versions of um, Stephen King films out there. I'm, I, is it better than The Shining? It it might be. I, I do sometimes find The Shining to be a very long, overlong film. I I might put The Shawshank Redemption slightly above this film, but that really isn't a horror film. I think for a suspense movie undoubtedly this is the best Stephen King adaptation, I would probably say. Mm, actually, I would agree with you in terms of suspense. Otherwise, you go into other genres such as sci-fi and horror and kind of things. And back to your point, the simplicity of one central venue, the bedroom where James Gunn's character is being kept captive, and then the performance of, of Annie. And maybe this a lesson for all of us, temptation, and I'd be the first one to fall for that, of overproducing, overcomplicating your storytelling when in fact, uh, here you have it, you know. And this was the Oscar-winning film for Kathy Bates, but also the only Stephen King adaptation to ever be A-dominated, let alone winning an Oscar as well. So, yes, superb selection once again for film marketing, Roger. Fantastic. Really enjoyed talking about that one, Pascal. 
Absolutely. Well, this is the end of the recording for episode 54 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Please leave your comments, suggestions, and more in the usual places. I was Pascal Fintoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. Right.